Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Amy Price, who's the managing partner and co-head of the U.S. business for Bentall Greenoak, which after the recent merger between Bentall Kennedy and Greenoak, has now grown to become a $48 billion global real estate investment manager. About half of those investments are in the U.S. A few updates for our listeners. First, welcome to 2020. We should do a Decade in Review episode remembering where we were in 2010 and now where we are in 2020. I guess from the depths of the GFC to the longest standing recovery in our history and to changes in our politics, innovations, threats, and opportunities actually unimaginable 10 years ago. Second thing is my apologies for such a long run of guy episodes in Leading Voices. Amy is the first woman of this season, but counting back, I realize we've not had a woman on the show for now 11 episodes. Unfortunately, this is reflective of our industry, but not about our mission on the series. As you've heard me say in my opening remarks many times, we're working hard to show the diversity from many, many perspectives of the real estate industry, from different food groups to different roles to different takes on the business to different geographies, and indeed to both men and women of different backgrounds. These are my aspirations for the series, but sometimes the logistics and timing of the schedule gets in the way. Please know that we're working hard on using the series as we keep it going to demonstrate these different perspectives and pathways to impact and success in the business. And I always welcome your suggestions for guests and feedback. Amy is also the first of our guests, I believe, from the real estate investment management business, a very important part of the real estate ecosystem that we will continue to explore. She brings great depth and perspective from a long career at Morgan Stanley, and then coming in about eight years ago to Bentall Kennedy and helping grow, expand, and sophisticize, if that's a word, to now become Bentall Greenoak. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. As always, we welcome your feedback on the series. You can visit our website at leadingvoicespodcast.com or our firm at terrasearchpartners.com. You can email me at my day job at matt at And if you're enjoying the series, please pass it along to a friend or rate us on iTunes or your podcast app. Your ratings and referrals help the podcast continue to grow. Thanks again for being a listener. Many successes for you in 2020, and indeed successes to us in the American endeavor in this important year of 2020 as well. Thank you much. So here we are, and Amy, we talk about two things in the podcast. So one is we talk about the business that the guest is in, and then the second is we talk about the guest and their career path, and we kind of intersperse these thoughts together. But I always like to start prior to talking about the guest, about what it is they do, and talk about Bentall Green Oak, I think Mm -hmm. is that the name? That is, that is the new name. So kind of talk about that, talk about real estate investment management. I want to start in the big picture concepts about what it is that you do and why our listeners are going to care about this part of the real estate business. Okay. So headlines about where you sit and the company that you now are helping to lead. Yeah. So Bentall Green Oak is a, and actually Bentall Green Oak, I'm going to shorthand that to BGO. BGO. Yes. Bentall Green Oak is a lot to say, even for me, and I've been at it for a few months now. So BGO works as well. But BGO is a global real estate investment management company. Mm -hmm. And I'd say as 
my experience kind of coming from the Bentall Kennedy side of Bentall Green Oak uh, is that uh, since I've been with the firm for eight years, we've been on a path of defining and building that investment management business kind of piece by piece and through some mergers and um, acquisitions of other companies. Mm -hmm. And when you started eight years ago, what was Mm -hmm. the size and sizes measured by AUM? And I think you were in the U.S. and Canada. But what was it that you found? And then what has it become just in terms of diversification and assets and ownership, stuff like that? So I joined Bentall Kennedy shortly after the merger of Bentall, a Canadian real estate investment management company with a hundred years of history in Canada and Kennedy Associates, which was more of a kind of single product, a little bit more of a niche investment management business in the U.S. Uh-huh. And so those came together. And for me, what was interesting about the opportunity at Bentall Kennedy was that there was a foundation of a business in the U.S., but there was a lot of vision and aspiration about building a more you know robust and inclusive investment management business in the US. So there was a lot of white space and there was a much more focus on defining what we want to become and putting us on a path of becoming that. And as we define that, that's what's led to material transactions in terms of our change of ownership and evolution. Mm-hmm. Right? One, four years ago, we sold Bentall Kennedy to Sun Life. And that really realigned our ownership from what had been a model where two of our largest clients were also owners of the firm to a more traditional model with, you know, a financial services kind of ownership overlay that would allow us to really continue to build a true third party business where we're serving multiple clients across multiple strategies. Mm -hmm. And was it at the beginning, did you have a global knowledge or aspiration? Because you said when you joined that there was a lot of white space in the U.S. Yes. But then after Sun Life, did that take yeah, it I think to a that, different yes. place? I, I, just, I think Sun would have certainly had a global vision from the beginning, but in the nearer term, we were really North American focused. And so the initial focus was building breadth in the U.S. so that our U.S. business aligned more with the Canadian business. Mm-hmm. And then with the change in ownership to Sun Life, I think that really opened the door for us to then think more globally, right? Sun Life is a global business, and we continued to think along that same journey or trajectory. And so that really brought us to then the thinking behind Bentall Green Oak. Green Oak adds a European and Asian business that Bentall did not have, and it adds expertise in the value add investing, right, part of the business and Risk Spectrum, which is distinctly different, I would believe, than mm-hmm. the core um, business. Value add in the U.S. And Europe and Asia. Uh-huh. So if you look at the business on a combined basis today, uh-huh. we have about $48 billion of assets under management globally. Uh, about $24 billion of that is in the U.S. That includes a mortgage business, which we operate for the general account of Sun Life, mm-hmm. and that it includes various real estate equity strategies. So the core fund, the value add fund series, we are launching a core plus fund, and then we have some really important separate accounts that we invest directly mm-hmm. for. In the U.S. we're now talking, so yeah. we're going to go flip-flop back between U.S. and global. Yeah. In the U.S. you are operating all the food groups in all these different strategies. Yeah, we invest, I'd say we focus, yes, but we focus really in the four main food groups, so to speak. Uh-huh. So lesson hotels, alternatives, et cetera. Uh-huh. So we're very primary 
asset class focused overall. Right. And same thing, primary market. So we do invest nationally, but we're very selective in our markets. Uh-huh. I don't understand this stuff. So you can help me yeah. and our listeners kind of get this. The headlines in real estate investment management might be Blackstone, right? So that may be the headline of this. Mm-hmm. And size and scale, where's the giant companies? Where do they sit? Where do you sit? Where are smaller niche players? Because I'm guessing you're not niche but you're not giant, so you're in between, and what's that space look like? Well, in the latest rankings I've seen, we are now the 29th largest global real estate investment manager. Uh-huh. So, number 29. I guess, you know, as you think about scale... And how I about guess, U.S., just to fit with that one? Any oh, I don't know the that? answer to that. Okay, okay. That's a good question. I guess what I'd say is, I don't love the measure of AUM. I get it, but... You know, a lot of strategies lend themselves to recycling capital as opposed to growing AUM. So uh-huh. I don't know that it is the best measure for our business. Uh-huh. What's really important is the breadth of which you can serve your clients. And I think that's a lot of what's driven our thinking. It hasn't been about asset accumulation. You know, how do we get bigger just to be bigger? It's about how do we better serve our clients? Uh-huh. And if we can offer strategies across the risk spectrum, if we can be in multiple markets, if we can be in multiple asset classes, it gives us a relative perspective that I think makes us better at assessing risk and opportunity in any of those individually. Uh-huh. I think in the industry, you know, you can be a really good niche, if you will, player, right? By property type focus or market focus, you can obviously be one of the largest global kind of allocators of capital. Right. I do think there's a risk of being stuck in the middle. And I think that was part of our concern at Bentall Kennedy, frankly, was being North American, being core, you know, we felt a little bit in the middle and we had to make a decision about, are we going to put ourselves on a course of truly being global and offering more robust suite of strategies and products to our clients or not? Mm -hmm. And as you do that with the robust suite of products, do you sharpshooter well in different spaces or does it wind up being across the board? And how do you develop that expertise and the strategy to get there? Yeah, real estate's local. So I think Mm -hmm. you have to be investing in markets that you know very well. So Mm -hmm. either need to have a local team or kind of a team next door that's actively engaged in that market. And I think you need to know your asset classes very well, right? Which is why I think you've got to be careful, again, about defining what you do and how you do it. Because the reality is, is you are competing with operators, REITs, et cetera, who may only focus in a market or an asset class, right? And so you need to be able to compete at that local level. But the goal is to be able to compete in that market depth, but then also offer that across broader markets and strategies. Uh And are there components or places in the marketplace that you have a specific expertise or that you like to say, hey, this is the essence of our business? I'd say a couple things. Number one, we are very fundamentals and demographic driven investors. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that permeates any risk, any strategy. So that's a common denominator. And I think that drives the way we think about our business. You know, we're really trying to look forward and understand in three years, five years, 10 years, where are people going to want to live? How is affordability and mobility and all these factors kind of influencing these decisions? And how do we invest in assets that are going to be better positioned in five years, let's say, than they are today? Mm -hmm. And so I think we obviously have a research and strategy team that focuses on that, but we bring that thought process to our transaction team, our asset management team. It really kind of permeates the group. And I'd say if there's a common denominator, that's one. I think that's also one of the reasons that Green Oak and Bentolf felt like they could come together because there was a lot of commonality in that approach and kind of 
investment thesis, if you will, mm-hmm. to build on. Mm-hmm. And your investors are largely pension funds? A lot of, yeah, definitely institutional. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of pension funds, foreign capital investors, yeah. Uh-huh. Any comment just globally about where that business is going? That was the dominant form of capital in real estate for years, and now defined contribution may be different than mm-hmm. defined benefit. Any thoughts or comments on that and how you deal with that stuff? A couple of comments. Number one, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of liquidity in the markets today. So I certainly don't have a view that there isn't continued depth of capital in you know the kind of the traditional investor base. Um, that said, if you think look forward, you know, there's also no question that the defined contribution market has not been able to access private real estate. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that will change. We launched a daily value fund, which is essentially a sleeve into our U.S. core fund focused on the defined contribution market a few years ago. We've been very thoughtful about how we've been test driving that, building it, et cetera. But we've seen really, I think, just the very start of the investor community and consulting community starting to understand how that product may work for the defined contribution market more broadly. Mm -hmm. And do you think that will be an increasing major part in the future in your industry? I do. I think it's going to take a while, but I do think that there's a lot of capital in that defined contribution market that's not in real estate today, and it will be. Mm-hmm. And last question on this one, I, yeah. does that market want to behave differently? Are you a different kind of fiduciary for mom and pops and doctors and the guy on the street versus... Yeah, I mean, I guess a couple of things, right? Number one, there's a spectrum in what you call defined contribution or real estate. So where we have started is working with sophisticated, really trustees of health and welfare funds. Uh-huh. So it's a little bit more of an institutional investor, but in the defined contribution market. Right. And there's obviously a lot of room into the true mom and pops. So I guess what I'd say is, I think it's much easier to get your head around how that works together with income and yield oriented assets. Mm-hmm. And I think that best aligns with perhaps the you know goals of objectives of the large managers of DC capital. Mm-hmm. But I do think that as investors, they do have some different objectives. So I think you've just got to be really careful about thinking about what you want to offer and making sure that that is aligning with that capital. And if it doesn't align, then probably shouldn't do it. (laughs) Right. But they could be in the same collaborative together, which is what they have to be if they're in your core fund. Yeah, they come into the core fund. And and again, I'd say we're on the institutional end of that spectrum. But what we are offering that's valuable to them is number one, a daily value, Uh as opposed to just a quarterly value. Right. And we are offering some enhanced liquidity through cash and REITs. Uh And other than that, the underlying exposure they're getting to real estate is through our core fund. Uh And in that way, they have, you know, the same rights. They're treated the same way as any of our other investors. Uh And you talked before about having a view of what's going to happen and looking forward. And people talk about ESG, but I'm thinking about E, not S and G, I guess, because I'm so curious about environmental stuff. And I don't know how you get paid today to not invest in a place that may be flooded in 10 years, whether or not that's really coming or not. But we know that that is. So how do you guys look at environmental risk, environmental issues, both green footprint of a building, but then sea level rise here in San Francisco, or just talk about that stuff? Yeah, well, there's a lot there. A couple of things, right? Number one, there's no question in my mind that the conversation is an industry that we're having today and people's understanding of risk today is 
certainly at the very beginning of what we really need to do as an industry. And, you know, in another five or seven years, I think we're going to view this risk very differently. Hmm. So I think that part of it is you just, you got to decide as an investor today, if you're willing to take risk in a certain market or of a certain asset class. And I think a lot of times when you decide, if you want to try and price in the risk that you perceive, you're going to price yourself out of the market. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a competitive market. You're not going to be an investor in those markets. And I think that's okay. Yeah, you know, I think you can win by missing, so to speak, right? Win by not missing missing the loss that you might have missing, in seven well, years. Well, but exactly, exactly. And I think you've got to have a long term view. And those are even just some of the lessons coming out of global financial crisis, et cetera. Of, you know, there was a herd mentality. It was everyone was in it together. I just think there's much more of a view of we can differentiate ourselves by not taking a risk if mm-hmm. we're ahead of seeing that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think it's about communicating that and being clear on what markets you may not invest in and why. Mm-hmm. And I think you've just got to stick to your conviction there. For some reason, I have Miami in my head and I, I don't know if that's the one market, but is that a market that you do or don't invest? Or is there a market like that that could be literally underwater? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, Miami's a good example. Florida as a whole, I'd say, I don't know there's a market that we've absolutely at no cost would ever invest in, period. Mm-hmm. But the perception of risk mm-hmm. is highly elevated in that market. And therefore, you've really got to think, particularly in your residual, how are the capital markets going to price this risk in five years mm-hmm. that might be different? Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to think about insurance costs. So. I just heard about a commercial property that's up along kind of the border of where the California wildfires have been. Uh And their insurance premiums went from $90,000 a year to $815,000 a year in one year. Right. What do you do with that? That's going right? to clobber you right in the nose. I mean, that you can't, right. And so I think there's a lot of risk about the cost structure of operating assets and capital markets, particularly in the exit, that you've got to be thoughtful about. Mm-hmm. We come back to that because it's an interesting one to explore, especially for the fire damage in Northern Cal where we live here, right, together. Right, It's close, so, right. So let's totally change the subject. Okay. So let's talk about you, Amy. So okay. how you got here, why you're here, how this came together. So... You're a kid, you're growing up. Where'd you grow up? What'd your family, what was that like? So I grew up in the suburbs of LA. Uh-huh. My mom taught second grade. Uh-huh. My dad uh, spent most of his career at IBM. I had zero exposure to real estate. Uh-huh. Didn't give it a thought. And then I got to thinking about college and probably in hindsight, my mentality was a little bit of like, how do I find kind of the antithesis of what I've had today? And not because it was bad, just because I figured, uh-huh. oh, I'm going to college. I should do something different. So. Right. I went from the suburbs of LA to the middle of nowhere, New York, mm-hmm. uh, Colgate University. So definitely in the middle of nowhere, small liberal arts college, and it was great. And we've talked about this before, but there's like three or four real estate people in your class. Do they have like a real estate class at Colgate that they were? Yeah, no, I, I honestly think that's just more coincidence and dumb luck than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can speak for myself. I mean, I definitely came out of Colgate with even at that point, no focus on real estate. Uh I'd never taken a real estate class. I Uh didn't understand it as an industry. Uh I actually came out of undergrad as an economics major thinking, all right, how do I kind of continue, you know, on this trajectory and where do I kind of go find, if you will, business 101. So I focused on getting a foot in as an analyst on quote Wall Street. Uh Yeah, this was in 93. So that was kind of my my vision. And interestingly, the other classmates who ended up in real estate, I think they too started either 
in banking or accounting and then kind of migrated into real estate from there. Uh-huh. All makes sense from Colgate because you're yeah. close to New York, which New is York a draw. And, so you moved right. to New York. Was it Morgan Stanley? Morgan Stanley. So first job out of college, went to work for Morgan Stanley. Again, I was very appreciative to have the opportunity to be an analyst, and I really happened into the real estate group. I kind of selected into it because, number one, it was really just the breadth of experience you could get in real estate. So because real estate was a little bit different and kind of a little bit cut off on its own from the rest of Morgan Stanley, you did M&A, corporate finance, private equity investing, mortgage lending, it was all bundled together. So Uh from my perspective, I was like, wow, I can go work in this kind of quirky real estate group, but I can work across all these different, you know, parts of the business. That sounds great. Um, And then the second thing, frankly, was just, it was really good group of people. And that was very appealing to me. So I happened into real estate. Do you wind up like touring through like two months here, two months there, and then real estate was one of them, or you get to pick from a book of classes? No, honestly, say, it was just more that it was a little bit of who you happened to recruit with and how you happened to end up at Morgan Stanley, and you were just assigned as an analyst to one group mm-hmm. on day one, and, and that it was, was it for two years, and I ended up in real estate. Okay. Yeah. And it was two years, and then you went to Wharton, or how so long then was it So then I before? went to, I spent a third year as an analyst at Morgan Stanley, and I went to Hong Kong. And again, it was a little bit of like, all right, you know, how do I take advantage of the opportunity to do something a little different? Uh So uh, at the time, Morgan Stanley was really building its business in Southeast Asia. So there was an opportunity to go as a, quote, expat and kind of integrate a little bit with the locals. But you really got to just work on a ton of stuff. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So I think I went to uh, 13 different countries for work. And... Probably the most random piece of business that I remember working on was the IPO of a Thai petrochemical company. So, so are you in the real estate group well, there or no? real estate wasn't big enough to support a full analyst. Uh-huh. So I went as the analyst who would do all of the, quote, property work. Because uh-huh. in Hong Kong, it's right. property, you know, yep. real estate. Yep. And then I would fill the rest of my time by supporting just the investment banking business more broadly. Uh-huh. I want to hear about Hong Kong, but go back. Okay. So you join Morgan Stanley out of college. Do you have any either aspiration or knowledge that I'm going to be an investment banker? And then any sense of that career as a young woman, which is not common even mm-hmm. maybe more so then. Yeah, so I guess a couple of things, right? Number one, interestingly, my analyst class at Morgan Stanley in 93 was, I think, the first analyst class that was pretty much 50-50 men and women. Uh-huh. So I didn't feel like I was going in on my own. Uh-huh. At the same time, you did not look very far forward and see many women because right. there weren't a lot well, of you had one women. There. Was Lynn Thurber still there? Because I think she kind of made the way for people. She did. But. And there were a few, even just outside of real estate, there were definitely a few women who were really successful and really powerful women at Morgan Stanley, which uh-huh. was great. But at the same time, when you dug to that next level, they didn't necessarily have kind of that full maybe balance in their life, et cetera, that may be a little bit more aspirational for many. Mm-hmm. So it was hard to find, but it was out there. And I guess what I'd say is, you know, as I reflect back on it, and I obviously get asked this a fair amount, I just feel like I didn't come in with the view of I'm going to be a managing director at Morgan Stanley running an investment banking business or a real estate private equity business. You know, I just, I looked at it as a great place to start my career. Uh You work super hard, but it's one of those, you get what you give, right? And you work hard, you learn a lot, terrific Uh people, but I never looked too far forward. Uh And probably if I had, it would have been more daunting 
Right. But I really took it day by day and year by year. And you get to the end of the year and you reflect back and you say, gosh, I mean, I learned a ton. I worked with really good people. Let's keep doing this. I think as a kid, you probably, some people are, I'm going to become a managing director. So what's that yeah. path and how's that path could be for a woman? Oh, it's going to be hard. Well, exactly. Say, I'm going to cram as much experience and learning as I can get. And then we'll figure it out. But this can't hurt. Right. And I was more in the latter because I just didn't, again, even now three years out of college, I didn't have a perspective that, aha, this is my career path. I'm Mm going to spend my life in the real estate investment Mm -hmm. business. I went to Wharton after that. After how long were you in Asia? A year. Okay. So then I went to business school. And I would say for me, business school was about perspective. I went to business school to try and figure out am I on a path I want to stay on or what else is out there? So Mm -hmm. ironically, I went to Wharton. I didn't take a single real estate class. I took marketing. I took operations. I went and did consulting for my summer. Uh And I learned a lot about myself and what I didn't like, which Mm -hmm. became actually quite valuable to me. And so at the end of the day, I ended up going back to Morgan Stanley as an associate in exactly, you know, the same position I could have been promoted into two years prior without getting my MBA. Mm Mm-hmm. And so now here I am two years later, two years older and, you know, with business school debt, taking right. kind of, quote, the same job. But never for a second have I regretted that decision. Right? It just the... it gave me perspective. It just uh-huh. it made me feel like I have a little bit better understanding of what else I can do and confidence that, wow, I actually got lucky and I actually happened into something that actually works for me mm-hmm. and not just, well, gosh, this seems OK. But what else is out there? Uh-huh. Now, I think of investment bank, I think of Morgan Stanley or any investment bank. Yeah. I think of one of the podcasts we had was with Bobby Turner, who described his Wharton experience as getting a black belt in how to make money. So I think of investment bank is that that's the goal. So you exit Wharton, you go back to real estate. It feels kind of warm and fuzzy, but are you coming out like, okay, I know how to get to that goal, that black belt in creating wealth goal. Was that there for you? Yeah, no. You know what? I think people, and I think that's probably personal, people are motivated by different things, right? Is Uh it wealth? Is it power? Is it influence? You know, what is it? And that resonates less for me, Uh right? But again, for me, it was context and perception and, you know, just more confidence in what I was going back to. Uh And was there a word that resonated for you when you went back to real estate that made real estate, okay, I I feel good here. This is where I want to build a career. And it's not wealth creation is not power. I'm thinking complexity, but I don't know that. But early on, you said that you got to play in all different spheres in real estate versus a fine lane, which might be in other sectors. I don't know that. But yeah, well, and I think that is, I mean, certainly real estate, given that it's tangible, you can touch it, you can feel it, you can walk through it, you can experience it. So that was very attractive to me. I liked that concept. Uh Um, And so that was appealing. And as I kind of narrowed in then within this kind of mushy world, what do I want to do? Mm -hmm. You know, that's really where I focused my career then on working on really the transaction side of the investing business specifically. Mm -hmm. And for me, that ownership and the accountability of getting to an investment decision, managing the asset and being held accountable for the performance of that asset, Mm -hmm. that resonated for me as opposed to, you know, a banking or lending world where it's a little bit more, you're offering a product, there's a market, you make a market, you kind of move on. Mm -hmm. So that influence, if you will, and accountability that you have and transparency that you have and how you define kind of success at that level, 
in the investment manager business and in the you know in the investing business, business. transaction uh-huh. business specifically, definitely appealed to me. Mm-hmm. So you did transactions in New York. When did you move mm-hmm. out here, and why? What? Where? How? So I moved to San Francisco at the end of 2000. So how many years after? I'm lost in years how here. Many, well, matter. so in total, I spent after business school. I went back to New York for another two, three years. Okay. So now I'm eight years out of college. So I moved here in 2000. It's an interesting question. So I actually met my husband at Morgan Stanley. Uh Was he at Morgan Stanley? Yes. Okay. Actually in the analyst bullpen next door to me. (laughs) (laughs) In real estate? That's a different story. In real estate, yeah. Okay, cool. You're allowed to do that? No, you're not. Okay. But we don't need to dive into that one. (laughs) Um, We didn't get married for eight more years, so it was kind of forgiven. But anyway... Yes, that is the genesis of the relationship. The point here, though, is that he is a New Yorker, Uh born, bred, New Yorker, me, California girl. So at one point, that kind of felt like it was defining the potential of the relationship, right? But he then transitioned his career into technology venture capital. Uh So it ended up being my husband who was really the catalyst to move to San Francisco because this was the right place for him to be professionally. Um, We only overlapped in Morgan Stanley for two years. Okay. But so, yeah, so he got into the venture and technology world. So Uh San Francisco was natural for him. And I'd always felt like I would get back to California at some point. At the time, Morgan Stanley actually did not have an investing team in San Francisco. The investing real estate investing team was down in L.A., But I will say this is one thing that I always have appreciated about the people I worked with and Morgan Stanley is that when I told them I wanted to move to San Francisco, I kind of felt like I was walking in to a little bit give my notice. And instead, they completely supported me in that move, which was terrific. And I then got lucky in that the guy that was running the investing business in LA decided to leave Morgan Stanley and become a partner. And Therefore, it created the opportunity to move that team to San Francisco, which is where the banking team and other teams were. So it all kind of came together for me. Yeah. yeah. So then between what year and what year were you at Morgan Stanley here and what did you get to see, what did you get to do? And then you get to leave the office, I think. So kind of talk about that progression and then we'll get to. Yeah. So really I moved out here stuff. in, what did I say, 2000. Mm-hmm. I was really a team of one specific to the investing business, but again, in a broader Morgan Stanley office, I kind of migrated from being a transactions person to, you know, we built up a team out here and consolidated the LA team. So to managing the investing team for the West coast. And I did that for, I guess, a decade, a little longer. And I left at the end of 2011. So in total, I spent 17 of 19 years at Morgan Stanley. Okay. And mm-hmm. that skips over the GFC and uh, Morgan well, Stanley. Happened. So yeah. a couple things happen, yeah. not in the middle, but at the end of that stuff. And Morgan yeah. Stanley flew high and fell steeply. So talk about mm-hmm. that and what that felt like to experience, be part of it, watch it, and like that. Yeah, well, it was rough. We could spend a lot of time on this. Yes, we could. But uh, I guess what I'd say is, listen, there's a few of the lessons learned. Number one, and it goes a little bit to what I was saying earlier, you know, in hindsight, one of my own observations and, and learnings is that there was way more risk in the kind of aggressive market expansion model of Morgan Stanley than I and others probably perceived at the time. So Morgan Stanley had gone in and was investing in markets that we just really didn't have local presence in. We didn't, you know, and that was 
problematic, right? So I think that coming back to that focus on you can be global, but you've got to be selective in the markets you're going to execute in, even on a global scale. And you have to have a real local knowledge, local presence, right? You're going to get yourself in trouble. Mm -hmm. So that was one learning. Another learning was that it's really important that management has the ability to really think about and run their business as a bottom line business. And I think as being part of Morgan Stanley and the buildup to the crisis and, and that just massive expansion, and there was just a lot more focus on kind of that top line, you know, as a revenue driven business and a fee generating mm-hmm. business. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a very important thing with even through those changes of ownership and from Bentall Kennedy, you know, with the Sun Life ownership and now is Bentall Green Oak and having Sun Life still as a 51% majority owner, how to ensure there's still a strong culture of the management team and the leadership team managing to a bottom line. Mm -hmm. And then I think just the third learning I, sounds obvious, but just the value and the importance of over communicating with your clients and your investors. I think a lot of what ultimately got us through it and has gotten Morgan Stanley through it is that transparency and communication. It's funny. I think about our own company and we've been mm-hmm. doing some planning around this. And if there's one word I want to use for us, it's transparency. Mm-hmm. And it's only an ideal because you can't really be there. You'd be pretty close to it. Mm-hmm. And if it's a guiding principle, it does change how you behave. Mm-hmm. And you probably have to with investors in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there was a time where it was that, ooh, it was hard it was hard to be transparent because you actually didn't know the answer. I mean, it was hard to know. I mean, the markets were moving so quickly. And it, again, it goes back to what's a commonality kind of between Bentall, Kennedy, and Green Oak. And, and some of it is, I mean, there are a lot of commonalities. And one of them is that investor-led business. And that mm-hmm. means how do I serve my clients? How do I communicate with my clients? And building right. a business that's based on that. And I I wonder how much, I'm thinking of the lead up to the GFC. I'm thinking of Morgan Stanley, but I'm thinking of everybody else. And I want to use the word drunk with too much money and too many buckets or something. You and others, right? And so I'll I'll use that word. And then I'll use the word of remembering when Blackstone bought EOP. Mm -hmm. And the next second, he still starts splitting up the portfolio. And everyone ran after pieces of that drunk with money, making really bad decisions. You may have been in part of that, but I think the whole industry was there, although one of the headlines was that company was Morgan Stanley, which was one of the leaders and I think has become again. But any comments? Are those the right words? Are they the wrong words? You were in the crucible well, of Well, yeah. I mean, again, I think that there was over leverage and really lax credit standards. Uh-huh. And you mentioned the... EOP transaction. And by the way, really good time to be East Hill Secures. I mean, some of these guys are getting paid two, three times on the same oh. portfolios, right? So that was probably a really good business to be in. But you know, I think the main thing that has changed and what led up is the credit markets, right? There was just a tremendous amount of capital available, quote, cheaply. Mm-hmm. And I also just think that, you know, again, as an industry, we didn't really appreciate what a downside could look like. And therefore, there wasn't adequate capital reserved against that because it was an environment where it was relatively easy to deploy that capital. So you kind of ran a business with aggressive capital deployment and expectation that you'd be recycling that capital, reinvesting that capital, re-raising that capital, right. and then it all stopped. Right. And we know each other. So I remember yeah. the time when it all stopped and it felt like two years of 
gray skies and fog, because we're here in San Francisco where we get that fog. Right. And then I'm just making this up, but the next thing I remember, you left Morgan Stanley two years after that or something and went to Bentall, which coming out of the fog to do this different kind of thing. So talk about the decision, the opportunity, and what drove you to go there and do that. And one more question to it. Then what did you have to become to go over there from this transaction person to being at the helm or with others of this company? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of things in there, right? Yes. I mean, there was a definitely a few years after the, quote, financial crisis where I did stay at Morgan Stanley. And, you know, and I felt like I could still help to influence and kind of work through our portfolio and assets. So mm-hmm. I felt like that was productive. And then I got to a point where I was like, all right, I kind of feel like now's the break point, meaning there's really nothing more for me to do looking backwards. And mm-hmm. how do I want to look forward? And so for me, there was a couple dimensions to it. One was just as I thought about, again, the, the investment management business, how did I think about doing it a little bit differently in terms of, you know, what type of company, type of focus, et cetera. So that was part of my thinking. You know, as I mentioned briefly earlier, what was unique to me about the Bentall Kennedy opportunity was that, again, it was just happening at this point where there was a foundation of a business in the U.S., there was a strength of business in this big engine from Canada, and yet there was just, again, a lot of white space, if you will, an opportunity to think about how do we build and grow? And probably part of it is because I'd been thinking so much about, you know, how do we fix and repair? Being able to kind of shift and pivot and be able to think about how do you build and grow was very appealing. And then the other thing that was really important to me at the time was that I got to go work for a guy named Mike McKee, who was the, at least kind of on an interim basis, the CEO of the U.S. business for Bentall Kennedy. Uh And Mike had come out of retirement, joined the board, and then taken on that leadership role. You know, his view is getting back to the golf course and other things, boards and other things with the time. So for me to be able to come in and work for Mike, who had been, you know, a true CEO, understand what that was about, have him as a mentor, have him focused on developing me so Mm -hmm. he can get back to where he wants to be. was really unique. And I think for me, I realized that what had been so impactful for me at Morgan Stanley was being there for nearly 20 years and having these tremendous long-term relationships and the value of that. So it was very daunting to think about how do I make a career change and start over somewhere else? And mm-hmm. so the ability to be at a place where somebody was gonna invest in me from the beginning Mm-hmm. was hugely attractive. And how did you have to change your thinking from being this transaction mm. person? Because you love real estate transactions, yeah. including workouts, but you love real estate <laughs> transactions. How did you have to change your perspective on the world and your way of walking around? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's definitely a leap between managing and leading a team, but with a very transactional overlay at Morgan Stanley, and then really being part of leading a business. Mm-hmm at Bentall Kennedy. And again, that was part of the attraction. I'd say it's just been a big shift in how I spend my time. Mm-hmm. It's a big shift in thinking much more about either externally, just markets, trends, vision, direction, and then internally operations. How do we do this? Our team, you know, all the nuts and bolts of managing a business that's almost independent of the transactions, right? right. So yeah, I, I spend my time doing very different things. And how much is it that view high picture and strategy and how much is operational thinking of those uh, two things? That's a good question. If you let it be, it easily becomes all operational yeah, thinking because it's hard to find the uh-huh. time and space so you have to do it. Uh-huh. It's hard work. I mean, I think part of it is just there's a natural inclination. People are more inclined and like to spend their time thinking about 
certain trends or not. And so I think part of it is just knowing yourself uh-huh. and how you want to spend your time. Uh-huh. And part of it is also working hard at growing and recognizing what you don't know and how you're going to do it. So for me, for example, in terms of that progression of being, you know, how do I think about really being a leader uh-huh. is I worked with an executive coach for a few years for sure. And certainly uh-huh. as I transitioned my responsibility in the U.S., I had never worked with a coach before. It took me a while to understand what that was about, but tremendously helpful to me. Uh-huh. And yeah. was there more growth for you to be on the big picture side or yeah. on the operational side? I'd say most of growth is just how to manage everything, right? right? I can sit in either world. The challenge is spanning both and, and making sure you've got the right balance. Uh-huh. And when you get to Bentall, the question mm-hmm. from where you were sitting at Morgan Stanley, I think if I caricaturize Morgan Stanley again, I think of New York, I think best and the brightest. I think of people mm-hmm. Wharton MBAs. I think of coming out here to Kennedy Associates, if that was the driver of the business in the U.S., that was in Seattle, Mm -hmm. probably a different clock speed of thinking. And so how do you merge into that and then lead that without being impatient, if that's the right word? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I guess what I'd say is I think that part of it is I did spend 11 years in San Francisco at Morgan Stanley. So Uh that's a transition, right? That feels very different than New York. There's Uh a specific pace to New York. But I think part of it is just, there's a certain intensity and pace that's going to align with different parts of the business. And that's okay. And you have to kind of allow for some differences. You've got to allow for differences of style and approach. Uh What's important is the commonality has to be around performance and excellence and delivering high quality work product. And so I think complacency doesn't work in any way, but uh-huh. you also need to, I think there's a few different lenses through which you have to look at, you know, intensity and, and where you're getting to. Mm-hmm. And then a couple years later, you had your first big transaction. And so maybe someone, again, coming from Morgan Stanley, who understood M&A a little bit, a good person helped lead that. But how did you get through that first transaction? What was your contribution or your piece of that? And how did that first transformation affect the business? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say a couple of things. Number one, that was very, it was a management led decision, right? We decided that if we were going to continue on this journey to be eventually a global institutional manager, we needed to make a change. And so part of it was just that strategic thinking. And there was definitely a group of us that spent a lot of time thinking about that, that put us on that path. The actual execution of it, we went out to a handful of prospects that we chose that we thought would be, you know, a good owner of the business. Mm-hmm. And we, yes, we ran a process and yes, it brought me back to some of my very early Morgan Stanley days. Right. But what was interesting is that we were really considering some pretty different alternatives, i.e., you know, an investment manager, a bank, a financial services firm. And so a lot of it kind of also from a management perspective was really understanding strategically how that fit would best support us in our business and in our clients going forward. So that was a lot of it. We ended up kind of getting to the point where we, meaning the management team, had a strong preference for Sun Life. They were a very large client of ours in Canada, so they were known to many of my Mm -hmm. Canadian colleagues. And so the kind of, quote, cultural fit and the how was more comfortable. And then I guess what I'd say is that, you know, we did have an advisor, a banker, where they really earned their fees was getting then Sun Life to step up and pay the most Uh um, through the process. Because obviously, particularly with our previous owners being 
two of our most important clients. We were not going to do anything that didn't maximize value to them, right? Mm -hmm. So thankfully, we had effective bankers who were able to make that happen. Uh And you said this before, but when your previous owners were biggest clients, that means they were capital that you were investing on their behalf. Is that? Yes. So we were owned a third by management, a third by CalPERS, Uh and a third by BCMC. Uh And CalPERS and BCMC were also clients of uh-huh. ours. So yes, we are investing on their behalf. And through this process, there are still clients. CalPERS is still a client, uh-huh. but BCMC is not. Uh-huh. So they internalize their business. Uh-huh. And that is actually part of, I mean, we certainly saw a concentration risk, if you will, in terms of having these two owners and very strong relationships with these two. So you know, they've moved in different directions, but uh-huh. yeah. Okay. And then a couple years go by and then yeah. another big transaction. Yes. So talk about what brought you and Green Oak together, besides that you all worked together before. So yeah. Thankfully, I maintained relationships with some and Sunny, Kelsey and I had had lunch and it became obvious to me that they were thinking about what they were going to do. And I knew we were thinking about what we wanted to do. So there was kind of an initial conversation. But again, I, I think what aligns so well is that from different points of view, you know, we both had a similar view of what we wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And combining brought each of us exponentially closer to that shared vision. And mm-hmm. so being able to combine a core and a value-add business, being able to be in major regions of the world, you know, it's just a far more, if you will, resilient business model than either one of us had before. Mm-hmm. And so now as you look forward with this more resilient business model and you're the... What number is it? Oh, 29th. The 29th. Largest, yeah, okay. 29th. And do you need to be the 19th? or How does that work in terms of the vision of managing this? If yeah. it's stable in terms of comparables to other, how does that work? If it grows, how does that work? And what does that do for your leadership? So I think the way we think about and define growth is less, again, AUM to me is a little bit of the byproduct and the league tables is a little bit of the byproduct. Uh-huh. But what we want to do is provide, you know, best in class investment expertise, again, in the major regions of the world and across the spectrum and debt and equity within real estate. So we have room to continue to grow, Uh no question. Uh Asia is part of the world that I think we're underrepresented in, but we have an exceptionally strong business in Japan. Other parts of Asia, I would guess that we would look at what I would call the inorganic growth, i.e. there could be, you know, a team, a platform, a company that we would integrate. But I also look at just the talent and the breadth that we have on our team today. And I think a lot of our growth and strategies, et cetera, will be, quote, organic, meaning working with the team and the leadership we have today. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So total change of subject. You're yeah. the current board president or president or chair of NAREM, which yes. is the National Association of Real Estate Investment Managers, yeah. an organization I've been to some of the meetings and have really enjoyed it because it is a small group, not a humongous group mm-hmm. of people who maybe like to talk, share ideas, and think together. Mm-hmm. That's what I understand. Yeah, that's right. And the next level of it, it's really, quote, just investment managers. So uh-huh. it's not the place you go with the brokers, the developers, everybody else to get business done. It is a place for, I'd say, self-reflection for uh-huh. investment managers right. to think about you know, how do I be better at my business, in my business, uh-huh. you know, than I am today. Uh-huh. So given what we've talked about in yeah. this podcast yeah. about your managing at B 
BGO. BGO. Did I get yeah, that right? You okay. did. Yeah. At BGO, and then thinking about kind of having a role across the industry. What haven't we talked about about trends? And how do you also help raise the bar for yourself in competition, but your peer group in having doing better and better yeah. in the industry? I'd say like, Nareem, like to be part of, if you buy into Nareem and you're really active in Nareem, you, you know, you're doing it for a little bit of the greater good. I mean, right. you've got it like you're moving the industry forward. There is a lot of sharing that goes on and it is reciprocal. So that's not to say you can't take a lot away for yourself. But what I find really kind of inspiring, I guess, about Nareem is that the meeting content has really shifted in the last, say, five years. Like you go to meet Navy meetings today and diversity and inclusion, leadership and succession planning, climate change, technology and innovation. I mean, these mm -hmm. are the topics that people are talking about. Mm -hmm. It's not about cap rates and market pricing. It's about either what's going on around us or what's going on within our walls that we need to have more awareness and more focus on than we mm -hmm. have. And how do we keep getting better as companies and as managers. Mm -hmm. I hate to ask this question, but is yeah. there another company that you look at or another manager that you look at or when you go around that room and say, well, they did it great, either as a leader or as a platform that kind of raises the bar if you look at it? Yeah, you know what, I honestly, I don't have envy of any one company. There are definitely learnings from a lot of different places. So for example, Clarion is one that has probably a similar to evolution to ours and then right. kind of a separate account business, a core business. You know, there's some changes in ownership. You know, there are definitely some learnings uh -huh. that are similar. Uh -huh. um, and so kind of hearing that voice is always one that resonates with me. Uh -huh. Harrison Street, totally different business, right? right. But um, very innovative, if you will, in terms of thinking about investments, et cetera. And so again, some multiple of the, niche focus, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But again, some of that forward thinking about where are people going to want to live and what trends are out there and how's, you know, how, what's going on in the world around us that influences mm -hmm. real estate. You know, I, I view them as a thought leader in that space. And uh -huh. again, kind of always enjoy their perspective. Uh-huh. I always end the podcast with one question, but I'm going to start ending it with two questions. Okay. <laughs> so, Lucky the, me. The, yeah, I know. So you're the first in the new question. In part, you're the first in the new question because it's the question I want to ask a woman, but why would I ask a woman and not a guy this question, right? Mm -hmm. So in the world that you're in, in the job that you are in, which is so demanding, there's two Amy's here. There's the Amy of BGO and there's the Amy who's outside of this world. Mm -hmm. And how do you reconcile the two of them? How do you balance the two of them? Right, it's a very apt question for females, but I think right. if the guys right. can't answer it, they're in trouble. Right. <laughs> oh, I just know how to work, man. Don't worry about me. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I think so a couple of things. Number one, the juggling and balls in the air analogy always resonates with me. Right. And my feeling is that if you think of that juggling analogy, there's always a ball on the ground. There just is. I try not to leave it on the ground too long. Mm -hmm. I try to make sure it's not the same ball that's always being dropped on the ground. Uh -huh. And then it just kind of becomes part of the rhythm. But you uh -huh. have to accept, in my mind, for me, I have to accept uh -huh. that I'm not going to have every ball flowing perfectly all the time, period. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And then the second thing I'd say is that I definitely have a longer term view about, quote, defining balance. Uh -huh. And so over the long term, you know, it's all got to work. But I also really try to prioritize the present. <laughs> and that might mean the day, it might mean the five-year period, but just like what is most important for me to be spending my time on as just Amy right, right now. 
Uh-huh. And when it's just Amy, because I think of the juggling of the balls, I think yeah. of transferring the work ball juggling to the yeah. family ball jugging, but there's still yeah, yeah. no Amy in that. Well, so if you get balls, between right? the, the juggling is, do you have a thing you like to do? Like I get on a bicycle and I go do two hours on a bicycle or something, right? But do you have stuff you do that helps you be Amy, not the family member and not the CEO? Just the Amy? See, that's a, yeah. <laughs> there's, that a, there's a little a, left. There's a little bit, but not as much as there used to be. And mostly I, you know, but I just, but to me it's, yeah, I mean, definitely if I can go on a run, go outside, have a conversation with a friend that's just totally not talking about our family and not talking about work, right? right. I mean, just any kind of yoga, definitely very, uh-huh. very calming. Yeah. But just it's finding those little pockets of time because again, so much of life and right now, you know, it's no question that career and then for me right now you know my kids are just in really fun great ages and i'm beginning to uh 15 12 and 9 uh-huh. and i'm getting to that point where i can see the oldest going off to college and you know so i'm very appreciative of the time that i have and so uh-huh. again the balls that keep circling around one of them definitely is kids right got to keep that one in the air yeah people argue this but i think if you love what you do, mm-hmm. stress is a different question to this, but you love what you do, you bring it home at the end of the day. I think kids are inspired by their parents being inspired. If their kids see yeah. you just being stressed or go, oh, yeah. they see that too. Yes. I very much believe that I am a better mom because of what I do professionally, because it just gives me focus. I mean, I give a lot to it. I get a lot from it. Right. I enjoy it, mm-hmm. and I just think it makes me a, quote, better, happier person, and I definitely feel like it makes me a better mom. Fair deal. Yeah. So last question is always the same. If you had advice for a young person getting into the real estate business, what would that advice be? First of all, my first piece of advice would be, you know, come on in. I think it's actually a pretty interesting time for real estate. I think it's more dynamic now than it's been in a while, and part of that's technology, innovation, et cetera. I think it's a good time to be, quote, young in real estate as opposed to some of the challenges we talked about earlier, because the perspective you can bring as a 20-year-old, 30-year-old is a perspective that we need, and I think the industry is figuring it out more and more that you need it, and so I just think there's different opportunities. So number one, come on in. I always tell people to be as thoughtful about choosing who they work for in addition to where they work. Because again, reflecting back on my own career and just looking around me, I mean, I learn from people. And if you can surround yourself by good, talented people who are committed to developing you, that's just gonna go a long way in developing your foundation and positioning you for what you wanna do later. Mm -hmm. One comment on the who you work with, Mm -hmm. it's a quality But also, you come away from Morgan Stanley with a network of colleagues who you grew up with. Absolutely. In the crucible together that Mm -hmm. pays back all the time. Absolutely. So that really helps. Yes, no question. And, And I think that goes to, you know, it's such a relationship business. So I would certainly not just starting out, but as you continue in your career, you know, build those relationships because obviously, yes, the people, you know, in your firm, but how are you can connect into the broader community, whether it's through, you know, a ULI, et cetera, but find your path, build and invest in your network and 
maintain that because it's amazing how it can come back, right? And it's kind of a small world. Totally true. Well, Amy, thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Now I appreciate gonna, it, Matt. I'm going to jump up much. and down. <laughs> thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.